For the sermon this afternoon, I'd like to begin with a question, and I'd like you to ponder and think about it. What comes to mind when you hear the phrase, the handwriting is on the wall? What comes to mind when you hear that phrase, the handwriting is on the wall? Now, many today have an idea that, well, something bad is probably going to happen. Something bad is probably going to happen. However, due to our decline in cultural literacy today, many have no idea where the phrase comes from or who actually saw the handwriting on the wall or what the, the uh, <clears throat> context was when that handwriting appeared. In fact, I could ask you, who saw the handwriting on the wall? Where would you turn to find out? What sources would you go to? What was the context in which that handwriting was on the wall? <clears throat> what I'd like to do in the sermon today is to look at this incident, the handwriting on the wall, in the biblical and historical context for just a little bit. As to who saw that, why did he see it, what was going on, and is there any relevance to what is happening today in our country and in the world, or is this just something in the Old Testament that makes a nice story? Are there any lessons that we can learn as we look at this event where there was handwriting on the wall? Are there any lessons for us today? Are there any things that we need to be doing if we see handwriting on the wall? I'd like you to think about some of those things, and I hope that what we talk about today will be sobering in a way. It'll also be instructive, to be informative, and I hope motivating as we put this whole thing in context. So where would you turn in your Bibles to find out about handwriting on the wall? Somebody said the book of Daniel. Let's do that. Let's go back to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5. And we pick up the story of a man named Belshazzar. In verse 1, it says he made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. It was a big feast that the king of Babylon put on. Started drinking. I'm going to skip down through here. Verse 4, they drank wine. So they were probably feeling pretty good. And as they were feeling pretty good, he called for the vessels that uh, were taken out of the temple in Jerusalem years before. And he used those vessels to praise other gods, Ishtar, Baal, and other gods of stone and silver and gold, as it mentions here. So they're having a big party. He's mocking God. Some people think these vessels were in the temple in Jerusalem. This was God's stuff. Ha, 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 that type of thing. And as they were doing that, it mentions in verse 5, in the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall in the king's palace. 
Verse 6, and then the king's countenance changed. His jaw dropped open. It mentions his joints were loosened. And his knees began to knock. Have you ever been standing and then get afraid and you feel your legs shaking and you can't stop them from shaking? And people probably notice, here's this guy that was half drunk. All of a sudden, he becomes so. This was a real showstopper. I mean, everything ground to a halt. And this guy turns white because he sees this hand writing on the wall. So he calls for his experts, his astrologers and so on, to come and translate it. And they couldn't. And then the queen, his mother, it appears to be, said, but there is a fellow in your your kingdom who has the spirit of God in him. We're down here about... Verse 11, and in the days of your father, actually his grandfather, uh, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father or your grandfather, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, and the Chaldeans. Insomuch as excellent knowledge and spirit and understanding was given to him. So they called Daniel. Now, Daniel was about 80 years of age when he came into the hall, getting up in years. And before he reads the interpretation, he lectures the king. And you can read what he had to say to the king. The, The most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, that is, that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar, all peoples and nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Verse 20. Now, this is part of the lecture that Daniel was giving to the king before he launches into the explanation of the handwriting on the wall. But when his heart, Nebuchadnezzar, was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride... You know, Nebuchadnezzar kind of looked out over Babylon. He said, look at this great city that I have built. And then God humbled him. He was disposed from his kingdom and throne, and they took his glory away from him. He was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with wild donkeys. Latter part of that verse, till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whom he chooses. Verse 22, But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. You had heard what your grandfather had learned, that there is a God that rules on this earth, that the God of Israel is not like the other gods on this earth. He said, you knew this, but you forgot. And you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, mocking him, despising him. They have brought the vessels of his house before you. And you and your lords and your wives and concubines have drunk wine from them. And you praised other gods. So Daniel delivers this very stern warning to the king and then he begins to read what was written on the wall 
Verse 25, and this is the inscription that was written. Many, many, tekel yufarsin. And then he starts to explain. He says, this is the interpretation of the word many. God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. You have reached the end of the line. You're done. You're done. You've had it. You don't have time to repent now. You are <laughs> gone. You're going to be erased. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. You have come up short. He doesn't say to uh, Belshazzar, now, if you give your heart to me, everything's going to be okay if you change. He said, you're done. You have mocked me. You have despised me. You're done. You farson, or Perez as it's called in some translations, your kingdom has been divided and I've already determined it's going to be given to the Medes and the Persians. You're gone. You're out of here. That was the message. Verse 29, then Belshazzar gave the command and they clothed Daniel. Here comes his uh, reward. But in verse 30, it says that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. He died that night. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years of age. <clears throat> this is what we read in the Bible, that a proud person despised God, defied God. And God's hand appeared, or a hand appeared on the wall, wrote a message and says, you're done. You've had it. There is a God that rules in the affairs of men. Now, the Bible is not the only place where you read about this incident. Herodotus, a Greek historian, <clears throat> writing about 100 years later or so, around 450 B.C. Another Greek historian by the name of Xenophon. They talk about the downfall of Babylon in 539 A.D. They said that the <clears throat> Babylonians were attacked, or they fought a battle with the Medes and the Persians apparently a little bit north of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar had actually built a wall about 25 miles long that ran from the Tigris to the Euphrates. And apparently the first battle was fought there, and the Medes and the Persians uh, prevailed. So the Babylonians fell back into the city of Babylon that was surrounded by a double wall. There's one wall and then there's earth in between, about 25 feet of it, and then another wall. You know, the first trip that uh, my wife and I and Scott, when he was 18 months old, made to uh, Europe, we visited the city, a fortified city in the southern part of France, between France and Spain, called Carcassonne. And it's a double-walled city. And they used to joust in the area between the walls. It was impressive. Because you see this thing sitting up on the hill with two walls going around it. The Babylonians ret retreated into the city of Babylon. That as some sources say, had never been conquered in a thousand years. It was surrounded by this big double wall and a moat that was anywhere from 60 to 200 feet wide. They had all kinds of provisions inside. So they retreated and began to laugh. They'll never get us in here. They can't get us. And then they had this big party. Apparently it was in September, 
Not sure exactly what the party was, some sort of state function, could have been a king's birthday party, could have been something else. But Herodotus mentions the battle was fought, they retreated into the city, and then they were doing something where their mind was off of what was happening. It says the Medes and the Persians realized they wouldn't be able to assault the city. But they figured they could take it if they could surprise the Babylonians. There was a river, either the Tigris or the Euphrates, but ran right through the center part of the city. And what they did was divert the river. Now that probably took some time. They diverted the river into an old canal. So it probably took some time, could have been several days, maybe several weeks, in which the city was besieged. And then at night, they may have had somebody on the inside to let them know what was happening. (laughs) But at night, they were able to divert the water. The water in the river dropped. And the Medes and Persians walked underneath the big river gates, came up out of the river, and proceeded to attack the city. And it was so big that when you're attacking one side and there's a big party going on where all the leaders are, nobody knew what was happening. And the city fell. Herodotus says the Medes and Persians took the city without a battle. They took it by surprise. Because the people inside weren't paying any attention. The question I have here at the very beginning of the sermon is, what can we learn from this? What can we learn from this? Situation where there was handwriting on the wall and a city fell. I'll give you three quick lessons I think that we can learn. Number one, when you read the biblical account, this doesn't come through from Herodotus. Herodotus talks about the battle and some other things. But the Bible gives us an insight. The arrogance and the pride of Belshazzar and the people of Babylon, despising God. These goblets are supposed to be from the temple. Ha, ha, ha. Look what we can do. God saw that. And he says, you've had it. You've had it. You're gone. You're out of here. Pride and arrogance, despising God, trusting in themselves, the city fell. Because they didn't need God. They could do whatever they wanted to. A second lesson is that Belshazzar and the people of Babylon were forgetful. They forgot the lesson that their grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, had learned. Go back and read an earlier chapter in Daniel where Nebuchadnezzar says, there is a God in heaven. And he's like no other God on the face of the earth. He learned that lesson. But his grandson forgot. The people of Babylon forgot the lesson of history. And they paid with their lives. A third lesson was negligence. The cost of negligence. They were surrounded by Medes and Persians, but they didn't care. They were trusting in themselves. They thought nothing could happen. We're too big to fall. It's something we're hearing today. (laughs) We're too big to fall. Nothing could happen to us. We don't have to watch. We don't have to be alert. 
and they lost their city and they lost their lives because they weren't paying attention to what was happening right before their eyes. So that's the story, and those are some of the details. But what does this have to do with us? Yeah, this is an Old Testament story. This is history. <laughs> Why do we have to be concerned? How does this relate to us today? You know, this is an Old Testament story. We're New Testament Christians. You know, the old has been done away. Turn to 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 10. <clears throat> we find a very interesting chapter that relates to what we're talking about. Paul is writing <clears throat> to these people in Corinth. And Corinth was a big city, a bustling city, kind of like the Los Angeles of today or New York or uh, Washington, D.C. or San Francisco or London. These people were sophisticated people. But there were Christians there. And Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be un unaware that all our fathers were under a cloud and passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them. That rock was Christ. Now, Jesus Christ was the one that actually gave the Ten Commandments, that entered into the covenant with Israel and said, I will be your God, and you will be my people. I'm going to make you special. I'm going to give you my laws and commandments. They're going to set you apart from the world. He didn't do that with anybody else. And you can look down through the rest of that chapter. He talks about verse 6. He says, now these things became our examples. He's talking about our examples. Verse 6. To the intent that we should not lust after the evil things as they lusted. He's talking about the ancestors of the Israelites. Or the Israelite ancestors. And do not become idolaters. Don't be worshiping other gods. You know, the Israelites were told in the Old Testament, when you go into a country, don't ask how they worship their gods. Don't do to me what they're doing. Don't look in those directions. Verse 8, it says, let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And we shouldn't be moving in those directions. He's telling the Corinthians that. And in Paul's time, there was a phrase to Corinthianize was to Live it up, as people do today. People live for the weekends today. Just tie one on, and maybe you can stagger back to work on Monday or maybe Tuesday <laughs> after a day to sober up. But we're doing the same things today. Paul says, don't be committing sexual immorality. Let us not tempt Christ, which is exactly what uh, Belshazzar did. Look, we can drink out of these, these, these cups and goblets. Nothing's going to happen to us. But notice in verse 11, this is in the New Testament. Now all these things happen to them, that you read about in the Old Testament, including the handwriting on the wall, as examples. And they were written for our admonition on whom the ends of the ages have come. These are examples for those people living at the end of the age. That we better take heed of. Or the same thing could happen to us that happened to the Babylonians. 
So what we read in the Scriptures is these Old Testament stories are not just there to entertain us. They're there to instruct us. You know, George Santa Anna, he was a Spanish-American philosopher born in Spain but spent about 40 years in America. He's the individual that made the statement, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. If we don't learn the lessons of history, Belshazzar forgot the lesson that his grandfather had learned. Santa Anna has made the statement, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. They're going to make the same mistakes. Came across a definition of Americans recently. It says Americans are the most informed people in the world about the last 24 hours. But the least informed people about the last 60 centuries, the last 6,000 years, they're unaware of what happened in the past that relates to us today. Very sobering. Belshazzar and the Babylonians forgot the lessons of history. They didn't recognize the significance of what was happening right under their nose. I would like to ask the question this afternoon, are there any signs of the times, any handwriting, in the, handwriting on the wall today that we need to be aware of, that we need to be watching, that the handwriting is already there, that we need to notice? What kind of handwriting is on the wall today? And why talk about this on the Sabbath? And this is boring. This is history. Why talk about it today? Turn back to uh, Deuteronomy for just a minute. Deuteronomy chapter 4. <clears throat> Moses is writing <clears throat> to the children of Israel, the children of the generation that came out of Egypt, that turned their back on God and had to wander in the wilderness till they died took about 40 years. So Moses is writing to the children of those people that came out of Egypt, the second generation. And he's trying to make a point with them. Verse 1, it says, Now, O Israel, not the Jews, but the Israelites, all 12 tribes of them, listen to the statutes and judgments that I teach you to observe that you may live. This is for your benefit. And when possess the land of uh, that the Lord God is giving to your fathers. Don't add to what I'm giving you. Don't take away. <laughs> just, just do it. Just do it, and you're going to be blessed. Down in verse 6, it says, Therefore be careful to observe, that is, these commandments and judgments, for this is your understanding and your wisdom in the sight of all the peoples who will hear these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. My laws and my commandments, the holy days that we heard about in the announcements, they're going to set you apart from the rest of the world. And as you keep those things, you're going to be blessed as a nation and as people. God wanted people to see what the Israelites were doing and hoped that their response would be what we see in verse 7. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us, for whatever reason we may call upon Him. And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments 
as are in all the law that I set before you. Now here comes the warning in verse 9. Only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget. Lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, that God delivered you supernaturally from Egypt. And lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life and teach them to your children. Down in verse 22 or 23. Take heed to yourselves, lest you forget the covenant that the Lord your God, which he made with you, I will be your God. You will be my people. I'm giving you my laws to set you apart from the world. And make yourselves, you know, don't forget and then start making carved images and a bunch of other things. And then it talks about if you do those things, verse 27, the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations. So these were the warnings that God gave to Israel. Let's just notice one other section here in chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. Now God repeats things in the Bible that are important. Moses was talking the second generation. He says, These words, verse 6, which I command you today shall be in your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. Down in verse 10. And it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and give you large and beautiful cities. You know, we live in a beautiful city. We live in a very, very blessed nation, which you did not build houses and all and full of good things, which you did not fill, hewn out wells and so on. Verse 12, then beware lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Don't forget. Don't forget where your, your blessings come from. You know, Jesus Christ said something similar in Matthew 24, talking with his disciples. He was asked, what's going to be the sign of your coming and at the end of the age? What's it going to be like as we get close to the end of this age? And he lists a whole series of things talks about take heed that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name and deceive you. There will be wars, rumors of wars. It goes through a whole series of events. But down in verse 36, let's jump ahead. But he warns people. He says, but of that day and the hour, that is whenever I'm actually going to come back, no one knows, not even the angels, but my Father in heaven. But as in the days of Noah were, so also shall the becoming of man be. People be marrying, giving in marriage, having a ball, doing various things, just like in ancient Babylon. They were surrounded by an enemy, but they were having a party. Not even aware of what was happening outside, not even concerned. Verse 42, it says, Watch therefore, because you do not know the hour of your Lord's coming. But know this, that if the master of the house, talking about a parable here, had known the hour the thief would come, he would have watched. The Babylonians weren't watching. They weren't aware. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you don't expect. We're told to be watchful, to be ready, to be alert. What do people see when they look around at what's happening in the world today? What do people see? 
They notice who won the NBA championship. They notice who's playing in the World Cup. They notice what the latest sale is going to be over the weekend. But what do other people notice that are not even associated with us? I want to run through a series of books. I'm not going to read them all. But I want to refer to them. Because these books have been written by people that have nothing to do with us. But they notice, and they're noticing things. And they're trying to warn our nation, trying to warn our people. And I would hope that we can learn some things. These books have been written over the last 20 years by people who have been watching world events. And they're concerned about what's happening in our country. The book was written about 1988 by Paul Kennedy. He's a British historian, teaches at Yale University, entitled The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers. The thesis of his book 20 years ago was, nations that continue spending militarily as their economic base crumbles eventually wind up serving other nations. And today we're talking about going into debt so that we can fight wars in Afghanistan while our industrial base has moved offshore, where we're not producing anymore, but we're still spending. Kennedy was saying 20 years ago, nations that continue to do that, they overspend on military and they're not generating any money, go bankrupt, and wind up serving other nations. Yet he's an advisor to governments. He's saying, this is what I see coming. And he was saying this 20 years ago. Another book came out the same year, written by a theologian by the name of Carl Henry, entitled, The Twilight of a Great Civilization. The twilight of a great civilization. He's watching. He's watching what's happening in the world. Let me just read a couple of comments here at the very beginning. He says, We are live, or we live in the twilight of a great civilization amid the deepening decline of modern culture. He says, Those strange beast empires of the books of Daniel and Revelation seem already to be stalking and sprawling over the earth. He said, We sit glued to television sets, unmindful that ancient pagan rulers uh, staged Colosseum circuses in Rome to switch the minds of the restless ones from the realities of a spiritually vagrant empire to the illusion that everything was okay. Sound familiar? We do that today. We do that today. He says, Our generation is lost to the truth of God, to the reality of divine revelation, to the content of God's will, to the power of His redemption and the authority of His word. He says, We're losing it. We're losing it. He's not part of the church. He's part of people just looking at what's happening in the world. His introductory comments, he says, half a generation, this is written by somebody else about the book. Half a generation ago, Dr. Carl Henry made 
an arresting claim. He said, the barbarians are coming. The barbarians are coming. And they threatened to undermine the foundations of Western civilization. To many in 1970, this must have seemed extreme. Today, with the disintegration of morality and culture evident on every hand, it rings prophetically true. The new barbarianism, Henry says, grows out of a thoroughgoing humanistic rejection of God and the Judeo-Christian foundation of Western culture. Humanists don't believe there's a real God. Humanists don't believe there are absolute values of right and wrong. And it's these people that have guided our educational system over the last several hundred years. And we're reaping the fruits of that today. But he wrote this book in 1988, almost 20 years ago, because he was concerned about what he saw. What I want to demonstrate, just looking at some of these books, is these guys come from a wide variety of backgrounds. These are not right-wing radicals. <laughs> Carl Henry was a prominent theologian. This next book was written by William Bennett. Secretary of Education, Secretary, another, he held a number of cabinet posts in the United States. It's entitled The Devaluing of America. What has happened to our values? Where did they go? And he's writing this in 1992, again, almost 20 years ago. The subtitle of the book is The Fight for Our Culture and for Our Children. And he was concerned about where things are going. Another book written by an educator and an engineer. This guy's practical. Vincent uh, Ruggiero, entitled Nonsense. Excuse me, warning. Nonsense is destroying America. Nonsense is destroying America. The role of popular culture in America's social problems. He's talking about the role of the media, the decline of religious influence, the loss of values, the focus on self. And he says this is nonsensical. We're doing this to ourselves. Another book we've reused a number of different times, written by a gentleman by the name of Jim Nelson Black. He's an author. He's an editor. He's lived outside the U.S. And this was published in 1994, 16 years ago. It says, When Nations Die. America on the brink, 10 warning signs of a culture in crisis. You say these are the warning signs that are happening today that we need to understand. He talks about a crisis of lawlessness. We can't control things anymore. There's all kind of violence. He talks about a loss of economic discipline. That's America today. We're spending more than we take in. We're borrowing from people who are potentially our enemies. And this fellow, and he's looking at civilizations of Carthage, of Rome, of Greece, and looking at lessons to draw. Rising bureaucracy, big government. Government will solve the problem. The decline of education, where kids today can't read anymore. They don't think. Uh, the weakening of cultural foundations, the church, judiciary, government, the loss of respect for traditions, increased materialism, the rise of immorality. 
was nations that did these things, nations where these things happened, destroyed themselves from within. Are you saying this is what's happening? This was 16 years ago. I'll be done here shortly, but I just want to show you this is what people notice. They're not even part of us. Robert Bork, nominated for the Supreme Court, wrote a book entitled Slouching Towards Gomorrah. And you know what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah? They were destroyed. Why? They were turning to homosexuality and other things. Why was he not confirmed for the Supreme Court? The liberals went after him. They didn't like what he was saying. He was knocking radical feminism. He was knocking homosexuality. He was talking about the decline in America's educational systems, the decline in religion, and he was borked. <laughs> he didn't make the Supreme Court because the liberal element did not want this guy there. Subtitle of the book is Modern Liberalism and American Decline. Understand why? <laughs> They didn't want a guy like this on the Supreme Court. But he wrote the book in 1996, 14 years ago, and things have not gotten any better. Another gentleman teaching at Harvard University, Samuel Huntington, The Clash of Civilizations and the Remaking of the World Order. He's talking about in this book that during the 1990s, there was a revolt began against the West. Non-Western nations have become more influential. And he says, we appear to be heading down. He said, the future is going to be very sobering. A couple of pages here. He says, much evidence exists in the 1990s for the relevance of, sheer chaos, of the sheer chaos paradigm. In other words, things are going to get bad. The global breakdown of law and order, failed states, and this is why you have a lot of immigration today. You can't live or function in some of these countries around the world. People want to get out, and they want to go someplace where things are better. Failed states, increasing anarchy in many parts of the world, a global crime wave, a transnational mafias and, and drug cartels. He says, uh, on a worldwide basis, now this is a, a very sober Harvard professor. He says, on a worldwide basis, civilization seems in many respects to be yielding to barbarism, generating the image of an unprecedented phenomena, a global dark age, possibly descending on humanity in the years just ahead. Uh, these are not radical people. They're looking at the lessons of history. They see what's happening today. They see where things are going. And they're talking about the trajectory of our nation, of where it's going. I'm going to jump ahead here. There's a number of other sources. America in Crisis. This was a talk show host written in 2000. Another book entitled The Twilight of American Culture. Again, written in 2000 by a cultural historian. What's happening in our culture today looks like what happened in ancient Rome. Now, this was written in 2000 by a person not in the church. But we published a book back in the 60s or the 70s called The Modern Romans, in which we were talking about what's happening in America and the West mirrors what happened in ancient Rome. And this guy wrote a book 
probably never read our material. But he's saying the same thing, the decline of the family, the growing disparity between the rich and the poor, the loss of economic discipline. And he said, America seems to be heading in exactly the same direction. Another book I, I want to mention specifically, written by David Kupelian. He's an author, a journalist, and also the head of WorldNet Daily. It's an internet news, news organization. Entitled, The Marketing of Evil. How did things go so bad in America? Why has it happened? Subtitle of the book is How Radicals, Elitists, and Pseudo-Experts Sell Us Corruption Disguised as Freedom. And he talks about the marketing of homosexuality. He said several guys who had degrees from Harvard in marketing got together. And they wrote a book entitled After the Ball, in which they described how they would sell homosexuality to America and disguise it as we're all equal, we all need to be free to do whatever we want. And says, we will lie because it's for a good cause. And we will appeal to the sense of justice in America for the underdog. And we will make people feel sorry for us. And they will buy what we're promoting. And he goes through numerous examples. He talks about the educational system. And he mentioned some of the earlier names in education were humanists. They did not believe in God. They did not believe there was right and wrong. They believed that everybody should be able to make up their own minds. And what's interesting, they were borrowing from some of the writings of a man by the name of Adolf Hitler, who used the same approach in Germany to lie for a cause. Two other books I want to mention in, in concluding this section of the sermon. One is entitled Defeating the Totalitarian Lie. A former Hitler youth and a soldier in Germany warns America. He says, I am disturbed, I'm concerned, because I see things happening in America that happened in Nazi Germany. The putting down of religion, the putting down of God, telling people that human life is not worth anything. You can kill people in prison camps and you can abort babies. doesn't make any difference. Some people are worth living and other people don't need to live. Very sobering. You know, his solution is people need to obey the commandments of God and that's the only way we're going to solve our problems. Now, he doesn't see the real big picture. But he's on target on some of these things. And in talking about politicians, he said, you take God out of the picture and you're blind as a bat because you don't have the perspective of God. You don't have a biblical perspective. Many of these earlier educators didn't believe the Bible was inspired. They didn't believe in a God. They didn't believe in true values that there was such a thing as right and wrong. Neither did the Nazis. And what this gentleman is saying, he was a soldier. He grew up going to church in Germany. He was captured at the end of the war, escaped. Quite an interesting story. 
But he says, what disturbs me is I see things happening in America that happened in Germany in the 30s. And he said, we need to get back and obey the commandments of God. Final book, and I think these two guys have read each other's books. But this was entitled, When a Nation Forgets God, Seven Lessons We Must Learn from Nazi Germany. This was just written this year. The author is an Erwin Lutzer, L-U-T-Z-E-R. He's a pastor of a big church in Chicago. Uh, <clears throat> and he's basically saying the same thing, talking about the loss of respect for religion, the fact that people believe today or being told today, there's no God. You can do whatever you want. There's no such thing as true values. Values are, uh, what's the term he uses? Um, it's just whatever, they think, whatever you think they are. Whatever you think they are is right. Or whatever you think they are is wrong. I wanted to read you this one section where he's talking about a fellow who's actually uh, <clears throat> retired now. As a, he was a professor at Harvard University. But he was involved in education and psychiatry there. And this is what he had to say about kids that come to school in America. He said this about 30 years ago. He said, every child in America who enters school at the age of five is mentally ill because he comes to school with an allegiance towards our elected officials, towards our founding fathers, towards our institutions, towards the preservation of this form of government. They're sick. They're sick. They uh, have been taught about patriotism, nationalism, and sovereignty. All that, pro all that proves that children are sick because they, the truly well-educated individual is one who has rejected all of these things. You can find his autobiography on the Internet. He's got a lot of accolades. But you can also read comments about what this statement. <laughs> Some people said, this guy is sick. He says, a truly educated individual I would call the true international child of the future. You know, the, the man is undermining everything that our founding fathers believed in. Everything our nation was built around. And yet he's a prominent person at Harvard University. I realize this is disgusting. It can be discouraging listening to these things. But I wanted you to see the evidence. These people see handwriting on the wall. They see what's happening to our nation. They see the direction that things are going, and they're trying to say, wake up, wake up, wake up. Don't let things go in that direction. But they also realize most of us are busy watching television, doing other things. And we're not really watching. Okay, let's ask another question. Why are these particular signs that we talked about? The loss of faith in God. The loss in an understanding that there are true values of right and wrong. The loss of economic discipline. Why are these things important? What's the prophetic significance of this handwriting on the wall? What do these things mean in terms of Bible prophecy? Let's go back and look at Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28 very quickly. You know, people these think these things are outdated. We don't have to worry about this anymore. 
Yet, as I mentioned earlier, God made a covenant with the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. He said, look, I've called you to be my children, my people. I've given you my laws. I want you to be a light and an example to the world. But he also put conditions on that. Leviticus chapter 26, beginning in verse 3, he said, If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, I will give you rain in due season. Yeah, we've had plenty of rain here in the Charlotte area this year. And everything is green and lush and beautiful. If you think back a couple years, we didn't have rain. The reservoirs out here were getting low. Couldn't water our lawns. Couldn't wash your car. (laughs) I think Atlanta was down to, what, about 15 or 30 days of water out of Lake Lanier. And after that, they wouldn't have any water. And we got that close, and people were praying for rain. Now we've got rain, and it's lush and beautiful. But God says, if you walk in my statutes, you keep my commandments and perform them, I'm going to bless you. Verse 12, he says, I will walk among you and you will be your God and you shall be my people. But in verse 14, he said, if you do not obey and do not observe my commandments... And if you despise my statutes, I don't need to do that. I got better ideas. That's all done away with. If you despise my statutes, hey, let's drink out of these cups. Somebody think they're gods, but we don't know. We know that God doesn't exist. And nothing will happen to us. If you do not obey and do not observe my commandments, if you despise my statutes, or if your soul abhors my judgments, that you do not perform all my commandments, but you break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will appoint terror over you. And when those buildings went down, the trade towers in New York, that shook America for a couple weeks. People went back to church. People prayed. And then they forgot. They forgot, just like Belshazzar forgot. It talks about, I'm going to break the pride of your power, verse 19, and we are seeing that happening today. And if the dollar goes down the drain, some very sobering things are going to happen in America. You can read the rest of these things, the the, the consequences that are going to happen. Verse 33, I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you, and your land shall be desolate, and your cities wastes. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbaths. It will, eventually. So these were things God told Israel. In verse 40, it says, But if you confess, if they confess their iniquity, and the iniquity of their fathers with their unfaithfulness, in which they were unfaithful to me, and that they also have walked contrary to me. He says, then I'll bless them. Then I'll forgive them if they change. But there were conditions on the covenant that God made with the Israelites. You know, our forefathers, some physically and some spiritually. Go to Deuteronomy 28 very quickly. It's a repeat, but this is a a repetition for the second generation. Deuteronomy 28, verse 1. 
Now it shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of your God and observe carefully all his commandments that I command you, the Lord your God will set you on high above the nations of the earth. You're going to be blessed. You're going to be blessed incredibly. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you because you obey the voice of your God. Verse 7, the Lord will cause your enemies to rise up against you and be defeated before you. Verse 9, the Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself, just as he had sworn to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God. Then all the peoples of the earth will see this, that you're called by the name of the Lord, and they'll be afraid of you, because they realize God is with you. God is behind you. I will make you the head and not the tail, verse 13. It talks about that um, <clears throat> you shall lend to many nations, but they shall not, you shall not borrow. America has been one of the primary lenders in the world up until about, what, 10 years ago, something like that. And now we're the greatest debtor nation in the world. See, this stuff isn't done away with. These things work. These things explain why the world is the way it is. Verse 15, But it shall come to pass, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, and observe carefully all His commandments, then all these curses are going to come upon you. It's going to be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. You know, we're worried about this oil slick developing off of uh, Panama City. Why? Because of the lust, the greed. And God takes His hands off this country we're just seeing the beginning of what's going to happen. It's going to be very sobering. It talks about diseases. It talks about a bunch of other things. Uh, <clears throat> Verse 41, it says, You shall be God's sons and daughters, and they shall not be yours. They shall go into captivity. You shall, uh, Verse 43, The alien who is among you shall rise higher and higher above you and you shall come down lower and lower. You know, we don't seem to understand what we're doing today. And some of our leaders don't seem to understand. We've been told that, uh, in fact, the press has been told in recent months and years, don't talk about Islamic terrorism. Because we don't want to link terrorism with any religion. Because many of those people are peaceful. So we don't talk about those things. Let me read you what one radio host interviewing a um, former co-founder of Hezbollah, what the gentleman had to say, Dr. Daniel uh, Shayesti. He said he appeared on my radio program, and I asked him whether true adherents of Islam could peacefully assimilate into American culture and embrace constitutional law and order. In other words, can Muslims live peacefully in America and embrace our culture? The man responded, it's impossible for a person who follows Muhammad and says, I am a Muslim, and follows the instruction of the Quran to align himself with other laws and cultural values. That's impossible because every other everything other than Islamic culture and principle is evil. In other words, you're part of an evil religion if you're not a Muslim. 
He says that chilling admission should set off warning bells. Yet despite this plainly stated positions, America, Americans continue to suffer the foolishness of political correctness that tells us we should celebrate the growth of Islam here in America. He says, Omar Ahmed, chairman of the supposedly moderate Council on American and Islamic Relations, reportedly told a group of California Muslims in 1998, Islam isn't in America to be equal to any other faith but to dominate, to become dominant. The Koran should be the highest authority in America and Islam the only accepted religion on earth. This is what people are saying that are part of it. And yet there was a move recently to build a Muslim mosque on the site of the Twin Towers in New York. And people couldn't believe, why are we doing this? Is there something wrong upstairs? You know, we're out of our minds. See, this is this multicultural thing that we're all the same. And nobody's religion is any better or any worse than anybody else's. Yeah, this German guy, and he says it like a German would say it. He says, America is part of the United Nations. But why are we letting these pagan people tell us what to do? We're supposed to be Christians. Now, he can say it and get away with it. Because he's standing outside looking in. He says, we're nuts. We're crazy. Yeah, we could go through a number of other prophecies. But these warnings are there. Let's look at one other prophecy in Deuteronomy chapter 31. Now Moses is telling this to the children of Israel before they go into the promised land. And he's looking ahead to the future. Deuteronomy 31, beginning in verse 20. He's got the leaders of Israel together. And he said, look, these are my last, this is my last will and testimony. This is what, these are my parting shots. This is what I want to leave you with. Verse 20 says, When I have brought them to the land flowing with milk and honey, of which I swore to their fathers, and they have eaten and grown fat, then they will turn to other gods, gods of the human mind. Well, I know what's right. God doesn't really understand. The Bible's false. A bunch of myths. They will turn to other gods and serve them, and they will provoke me and break my covenant. They don't want to be God's people anymore. Then it shall be when many evils and troubles have come upon them that this song will testify against them as a witness and it will not be forgotten in the mouths of their descendants. For I know the inclination of their behavior today. I know what Israelites are like as we are today. Verse 24, so it was written when Moses completed the writing, he put it in a book, put it in the ark, and he tells him, take this book of the law, put it beside the Ark of the Covenant, that it may be there as a witness against you. I told you, you do these things. For I know their rebellion and their stiff neck. If today, while I am yet with you, you have been rebellious, how then much more after my death? <laughs> you couldn't stay on track when I was with you. You know, what's going to happen when I leave? Gather to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their hearing 
and call heaven and earth to witness against them. Verse 29, draw a big circle around that in your Bible. For I know that after my death, talking to the Israelites, you will become utterly corrupt and turn aside from the way in which I have commanded you. And evil will befall you in the latter days. At the end of the age, you're going to be in trouble because you turned your back on God. I would suggest you maybe do some reading on your own. Read Jeremiah chapters 1 through 10, where Jeremiah kind of presents the case against Israel. Read Jeremiah 5. He talks about the religious leaders of Israel, full of hot air. And yet the people say, we love it. We love it. Isaiah talks about the time will come when your leaders will cause you to err. They will lead you down the wrong paths. The educators, John Dewey and others, that didn't believe there was a God, that believed that there wasn't such a thing as absolutes, that the Bible was a myth. This was a hundred years ago. But those seeds were sown, and we're reaping those things today. Isaiah also talks about evil will be called good and good will be called evil. We saw a commercial on television the other night. The guy was a homosexual. And he said, you know, I'm a homosexual. I'm normal. I'm not a pervert. You know, one-minute message. This is what's beamed into people's minds today. Little kids in kindergarten are taught about alternative lifestyles. And this is sick. You read Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah says, the whole head is sick in Israel from the top to the bottom. And you need to change. You need to repent. These are the warnings that we find in the Bible. What we've been talking about here is described in Bible prophecy. Moses said it's going to happen. And we need to be alert to what's happening. Let me end, though, on a more positive note. Because this is the handwriting that's on the wall. We're seeing these things happening. These authors have been writing for 20 years about these things. And we're seeing them coming together today. What does this mean to you as an individual? What do we do about these things? What can we do? What should we be doing as we see the handwriting on the wall? I've got five points to share with you quickly. Number one is wake up. Wake up. Recognize the signs of the times. Realize what the handwriting on the wall is saying. In Matthew 24, we read this earlier in the, the sermon. It talks about watch, be alert, don't go to sleep. The parable of the ten virgins, Matthew 25, it says they all slept. They all went to sleep until the bridegroom came. Came. And then a bunch of people woke up, but there was no, no oil in their lamps. Yeah, I made a mistake. I need some of your oil. Sorry, I don't have enough to give you. And he said the door was shut, and they couldn't go into the kingdom of God at that time. You know, we've got to get awake. We've got to wake up. The parable of the sower, Matthew 13, talks about four groups of people. One group got distracted. They heard the truth and got distracted. Another heard, 
another group heard the truth and they were disillusioned. I know all about that church. They're crazy. A third group got tangled up in the cares of this world. I'm too busy. I I don't have time. Uh, I've got other things to do. Uh, I, I, I need to make more money. There was only one group that bore fruit. 25%. These things are there to teach us lessons. In Luke 21, the latter part of that chapter, it talks about be alert and watch so that you are counted worthy. So that you're counted worthy to escape what's coming. What do you do to be counted worthy? Go back and read Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. It says, many, let's look at it so I can quote it right. Matthew chapter 7. It's towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount. It says, not everyone, verse 21, who says to me, Lord, Lord, I believe in Jesus, I believe in God, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. In other words, walk in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, haven't we prophesied in your name, cast out demons, and done all these wonderful things? And then I will declare unto them, I really don't know who you are. We never talked. You had your own agenda. You didn't follow my instructions. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You know, we've got to wake up. We've got to get pointed in the right direction and begin obeying God. That was the German guy. He said, you've got to obey the commandments of God. If you don't, you've had it. That was essentially what Belshazzar was told. You've had it. You've reached the end of your rope. There's no room to repent now. You're done. You're out of here. So wake up. If you're floating along, as one person told me not too long ago, we've got enough money to float right into the kingdom. No, we've got a job to do before we get there, or we'll never get there. We've got to wake up, brethren. Number two, repent, change, and, and, and grow. Obey God. Acts, 2, 30, Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 39. You know, people in Jerusalem had seen Jesus do miracles. They saw his resurrection. They were around the temple when Peter was preaching. They listened to what he had to say, and they said, Now what do we do? We believe you, Peter. Now what do we do? He didn't say, Just give your heart to the Lord, and everything will be fine. He said, Repent. Change your life. Turn around and go in a different direction. It was the same thing Isaiah told to the people of Israel. Isaiah chapter 1. He said, repent, change. Look, let's talk this over. You don't need to go down the tubes. Let's get with it. So repent and change. Begin to obey God. Number three, strive to build godly character. Strive to build godly character. Turn to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. Notice what Paul is telling the Christians here in Rome. 
And you can go through Romans 6 where he talks about being baptized, walk in a different direction. Romans 8, being led by God's Spirit. But here in Romans 13, he says, And this do, and do this knowing the time that now is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, and that's pretty much where we are today. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness. Come out of this world and begin living differently. And let us put on the armor of light. Paul talks about later about putting on the whole armor of God. Let us walk properly. You're not playing games. But let's walk properly, walk in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, as Belshazzar was doing, and as many people do today. I remember after living in England over there, you'd read this in the papers, you'd see it on the news. People say, you know, especially young people, we live for the weekend. You know, <laughs> you tie one on this weekend, have a ball. You know, some of Tony Blair's advisors were having big orgies in downtown London. And yet they were still in his part of his cabinet. He didn't do anything about it. Paul says, let's walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in licentiousness and lewdness or in strife or envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we do that? Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5 says, let this mind be in you that was in Jesus Christ. He was humble. He was teachable. He walked according to the Scriptures. Galatians 2.20 says that you let Christ live His life over within you. you know, Jesus kept the Sabbath, kept the holy days. He talked about love, talked about concern, talked about compassion. If we build the character of God, developing the mind of God, then God will be able to reward us with eternal life. But we've got to be doing these things. It just doesn't come automatically. Point number four. Lay a solid foundation and build carefully on that foundation. Lay a solid foundation and build carefully on that foundation. You know, First Corinthians 3 talks about be careful of the materials that you use in building on the foundation, the teachings of Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 talks about proving all things, examine everything, and then hold fast to what proves to be right and true. You know, as a young person, even as an older person, do you know that God exists? Because if you go off to college, people are going to tell you there's no such thing as a God. You're, you're, you're stupid. If you believe there's a God, is there a God? You know, we published a book entitled The uh, Real God, Proofs and Promises. Can you prove to yourself to the point where you believe there is a real God? I'd encourage you to do that. You know, don't waste any time. Is the Bible the Word of God? These educators said, you know, the Bible's just full of myths. And you'll hit that if you go to college. And you'll read it today. Agnostics and atheists writing books. 
Is the Bible the inspired Word of God? What are the proofs of the Bible? You know, we've got a booklet on that too. But have you proven these things to yourself? Another question, where is the church that Jesus Christ started? How would you recognize it? Jesus said, I'm going to build my church in the gates of hell. The grave are not going to prevail against it. It's going to be a little church, a little flock. It's going to be persecuted. First Peter chapter, Second Peter chapter 1 says they're going to have a more sure word of prophecy. Why does the church of God have a more sure word of prophecy? Because God has given His church an understanding of the identity of Israel. Where the Israelites are today, who Jeremiah is talking about, who Isaiah is talking about, who Hosea is talking about. The books that I referred you to, they don't understand that. They see the writing on the wall, but they're not quite sure who it's for. <laughs> God has given His church keys to understand Bible prophecy so we can deliver a warning. If you go back and read Ezekiel chapter 3 and Ezekiel 33, you know, Jesus said, watch. Ezekiel was commissioned to be a watchman. He said, when you see these things happening, explain what's happening and why it's happening and where it's going to go. Because if you don't do that and people die, their blood's going to be on your head. See, we have a mission to perform. We've got a job to do. But prove these things, brethren, to yourself. How do you identify the church of God? You identify it by the doctrines that it teaches, that are biblical doctrines. Final point, number five. What do we do when we see the handwriting on the wall? Put your heart in the work. Put your heart in the work of God. Jesus said in John chapter 4, verse 34, He says, My meat, my food, is to do the will of God and finish His work. Paul is talking about we're, the night is far spent. We're running out of time. Even these people writing the books realize we can't continue on this way. We're going down the tubes as a nation. Western civilization is going down the tubes. The Bible talks about a time when the Gentiles is coming. And Samuel Huntington mentions the, the, the days ahead are going to be very difficult. Things are going to get worse. They're not going to get better. And the Bible talks about the same thing. Put your heart in the work of God. Focus on the mission that we've been given to do. Here Jesus told His disciples, Mark chapter 14, 14, verse 15. He says, Go into all the world and preach the gospel. The gospel about the coming kingdom of God. The gospel that Jesus Christ gave His life for us so that we can repent and we can change. You know, the early church was doing those things. The church today is not doing those things in many cases. Matthew 24, verse 14, Jesus said, This gospel of the kingdom of God will be preached in all the world for a witness, and then the end will come. Somebody's going to do that. Preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. That's the answer, really. 
for Christ to return, set up a government on this earth, and bring peace to this earth by teaching people how to obey the commandments of God, just like this German soldier said. That's the answer. Keep the commandments of God. To warn this world about what is coming. You can't warn people if you don't know what the Bible's talking about in terms of Bible prophecy. And to prepare a people. This is part of our mission. To prepare a people to rule with Jesus Christ when He returns to this earth. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2 to 4 says, The law will go forth from Jerusalem. Paul talks about in Romans, people will kiss, want to kiss your feet because you're bringing them the truth. You're showing them the way to peace. Brethren, this is why we have been called. The Bible talks about handwriting on the wall. Belshazzar didn't realize what it meant. Didn't understand it. Wasn't even concerned. Yet other people today see handwriting on the wall, and I've tried to share that with you. We didn't produce those books. These are people concerned about the trajectory of Western civilization. And they realize we can't continue going the direction that we're going. Seneca, a Roman philosopher who lived at the time of Jesus Christ, made a very interesting statement. He's talking to the Roman world. He said, the time will come when our successors will wonder, how could we have been ignorant of things that were so obvious? People running around saying homosexuality is normal. Nothing wrong with gay marriage. We can borrow all kinds of money and still keep spending it. We can call good evil and call evil good. Seneca's comment, people are going to shake their heads and wonder how on earth could you be so stupid (laughs) and not recognize what was happening to you. Brethren, let's wake up. There is handwriting on the wall today that others see. We need to see what's there too and really get with the program. You draw closer to God, walk with God, talk with God, change your life, get ready for the return of Jesus Christ, as Jesus was saying in Matthew 24. Watch, keep your eyes open, be ready, because the handwriting is on the wall.